looking ultimately at the passage that Pastor Stan read for us this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, but I'd like to begin with a thought that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul, in that context, is talking about receiving the ministry of the gospel that he and others like Apollos, who was also a preacher, had, realize what a solemn duty, responsibility that was. And then he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 4, moreover it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. The word steward is not something that we commonly might use in our modern language. We might think of a stewardess. I know they call them flight attendants now, but uh, I remember growing up, they always referred to them as stewards or stewardesses. And why? Well, caretakers of the passengers, right? Good, good word, actually. And as Paul continues that thought about being a steward of the ministry, he gets down to verse 7, and then he talks about how they could get a little bit inflated in their ego about, wow, look at me, I'm a preacher. Or, you know, I've got this group of people. And he challenges them with this rhetorical question. He says, who maketh thee to differ from another? And then he says this, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? And though he's talking about the ministry of the gospel, what doesn't that apply to in our lives, right? What do you and I have that ultimately didn't come to us? We all start off the same way. A little baby coming out of our mother's womb with nothing. And so everything had to be given to us. Well, I'll say, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Who gave you the strength to pull? Right? And so really, if you're going to analyze it fairly and justly, you're going to come away with the humble and yet right opinion that, wow, if, if I've got stuff... If there are things that are under my auspices, then I need to give God the glory for that. I need to see it not really as mine. He carries that thought into the next several chapters, even into chapter 6, where he's talking about the caution about getting involved in immorality. He's like, you know, you might think, it's my body. I can do with it as I please. We hear that, right? My body, my choice. Wrong. It's not our body. It's not our body even if we're unsaved, by the way, because we're made in the image of God. He's our creator. But if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed. You've been bought back by the blood of the Lamb. And that's, that's why he says, don't you know in 619 that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. Even your spirit is God. What do I got? I ain't got nothing, in other words. Now, why do I start there? Because we have to understand fundamentally this mindset that ought to be very pervasive and woven through the fabric of our thinking about stewardship as we do anything in life, but especially when we come to the teaching of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's now writing a second letter to the same group of believers. And as Pastor Stan read for us, just to give us some context, 
He's writing to the Corinthians. That's a town, Corinth. Corinth was a very wicked city. It was a very wealthy city. It was a port city, if you would. If you go to Corinth today, there is a, a canal there. It's still a very prominent city, but you can see the ruins that are very extensive that have remained, and they've been able to pull out. And uh, they used to have athletic games that brought people around. But without going into too much detail, the debaucherized lifestyle became so well known in the Roman world of the first century that to, to be a debaucherized person, to be an immoral person, was sometimes said to be you Corinthianized yourself, right? You know, you wouldn't want someone to say you, you murder beached yourself and that mean, a, a, you know, a horrible thing, right? But we do have certain towns today, like, you know, if someone mentions the word Vegas, you don't really think of holiness and sanctity and, you know, a place where you go to get alone with God. Well, that's kind of what Corinth was. But in, amazingly, out of this very wicked society, God saves people. And that's what God does. Amen? And not only does He save some people, He builds up a church. There's a body of believers. Now, they're not without their struggles. And that's, that's why we have two epistles in our Bible, to help guide them. And one of the key things about discipleship is to get a believer to the place where they realize it's not just about what people can do for me. I get the joy about being able to pour my life into other people. Because after all, if I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb and I now have real estate in heaven someday for me to enjoy, and I've had my sin shackles broken, I ought to be telling other people about that, right? We're saved to serve. Hence the concept of stewardship. And so I want to spend the next, today and the next two Sundays, Lord willing, just to spend a little bit of time in chapter 8 and maybe a little bit in chapter 9, talking about this concept of stewardship, about specifically with regard to our resources. Because that's something that I feel like we all need to be reminded of from time to time. It's easy for us to drift into unbiblical, unchristlike thinking with regard to our, our stuff, whatever that looks like. Not necessarily just talking about what's in our bank account, but God has put into each of our lives things. And we need to be reminded of what Paul had said, that rhetorical question, what do you have that you have not received? And, and, and therefore, how ought I to look at it? So we want to begin today with talking about this concept of grace giving. Of course, what should a Christian do that isn't driven by grace, right? But I think that's a great word to pair with it. But sometimes we need a little bit of an example. Some of you have been to the Wilds camp up in uh, North Carolina, a beautiful place. A few years back, they put in a zip line over a beautiful gorge. And I remember probably three years back, I forget when it was, was my first time to visit the wild since they had put it in. I knew it had been in operation for a while. And I had been ziplining before. 
But you know when you're standing there and they're, and they're, and they're strapping you in with all these, this harness and this helmet, and you're thinking, plastic helmet, deep gorge, is this, <laughs> is this really going to help me, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, there's those, those things that make you, you think a little bit. And they're, they're doing a great job of, you know, giving you instructions about what to do, what not to do. You know, they ask you these questions, and they have two side-by-side zip lines, right? So it's whoever you happen to be next to, you're, you're told to get up in tandem on these platforms. The guy he hooks you up and stuff, and he's, wait, they got walkie-talkies, they're talking to the people on the other side, and he's like, you know, when I give you the, the signal, you can go. And part of what they explain to you while you're standing there is what to do and not to do when you get to the other side and you're trying to do the landing, okay? Which isn't too hard, you know, but if you, if you don't do it right, you might really kind of drag your hump a little bit. It might not be too comfortable. And this was my first time, but I happened to know the guy that I was standing next to who had already been to the camp a couple times and done it. So uh, when, when the guy from the camp said, okay, take off, I gave him a head start. He's like, you can go too. And I'm like, I know. I said, I want to I give him a little head start because I, I want to see how he lands, okay? And then I took off. So I could see him up ahead. And, of course, part of it I didn't, you know, encounter is you're kind of spinning a little bit as you're going across somewhat. But I was able to see how he came in and kind of lifted his feet up a little bit and then kind of went in very gracious, gracefully. And so then I did exactly like he did, and I stuck the landing. You'd be proud of your preacher, okay? <laughs> I saw some other people that wasn't so graceful, okay? Let me just say. But I benefited from watching another person's example. Ever done that in your life? I mean, we do it all the time, right? Someone's trying to learn how to cook. You watch someone else and how they cook. Uh, you know, over and over again, when I first entered the ministry, I was like, you know, glued to my, my pastor up in Illinois. You know, I wanted to see, you know, how do you, how do you do this? What can I learn from? What mistakes did you make that you wish that you could undo? All that kind of stuff. Examples. So it's not surprising that God, through the Apostle Paul, starts off this concept of grace giving and says, let me talk to you about an example. Now, the setting of what's happening is there is a financial offering that's being taken up, and it's an extended offering. What's the goal? Well, there are believers in a different town called Jerusalem. The church there began in the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Thousands got saved, right? You remember the account probably? And it, it was going great guns. But because they were followers of Jesus... How do you think the rest of Jerusalem felt about this church growing up? Happy or not so happy? Not so happy, right? I mean, right? They just crucified Jesus. You know, they wanted to get rid of him, and now there's thousands of these followers of Jesus Christ. Well, we don't know all. Some of these are from faraway lands. We know that because of how they were speaking in different tongues and languages on that day that they were there, but there were Obviously, lots of believers that live there, resident in Jerusalem. So what happens when some of these men now are followers of Jesus Christ and they go into work? Maybe they're fishermen and they work for a, a, a large fishing operation. 
And he's like, hey, are you one of those followers of Jesus of Nazareth? Yes, I am. If he's going to do the right thing, right? Might he lose his job? Yeah. Could there be even some that might lose their life in martyrdom because of their following of Jesus Christ? I mean, they crucified Jesus, right? So we don't know the composite entirely, but Jerusalem was not a wealthy church financially. Part of it was there were widows. There were women that needed help. And that's what Acts 6 is all about, the, the picking and the allotting of the first deacons to serve, to help so that the to teachers, the elders in the church, weren't spending all their time you know, helping take care of these women, which needed to be taken care of, but you know, they were being pulled away from their primary responsibility of being in the Word and in prayer. And so God raised up deacons. But again, that just shows there were financial needs in that church. By the way, what church doesn't have financial needs, right? I mean, every once in a while, I'll hear about a, a church that, you know, is really, really lucrative or, you know, something like that. But most churches out there, you know, they're, they're, they're not wealthy churches, especially ones that are preaching the gospel. And so Paul is traveling around. He's taking the gospel into different lands. He comes to a place like Corinth, and he's like, you know what? We're, we're taking an up an offering, and it's, the benefactor is the church in Jerusalem. And so that's what this is about. But, but I mentioned about an example because what happens is Paul mentions a region where there are believers called Macedonia. And Paul had been telling them about the offering. But I think what we get is Paul didn't really expect too much out of the people in Macedonia, maybe because they weren't as wealthy. You, you walk into Corinth and you look and you see all the opulence, all the buildings, you know, all the discretionary money that people seem to have for entertainment and thinking, wow, these people can really give because look at the wealth that's in this city. Macedonia, not so wealthy, kind of impoverished. And yet, what Paul does is he takes these first six verses, and he's talking to the Corinthians that live in a wealthy area, and begins to say, look at these believers, these Christians that live in this more impoverished area of Macedonia, because they're really doing it right when it comes to grace giving. And so from that, we can learn some principles from the example of grace giving. I want you to see, first of all, in verses 2 and 3, that grace giving has a way of ignoring conditions that might seem discouraging. Discouraging in the sense of discouraging us from giving, but discouraging across the board anyway. The Corinthians had begun to participate in giving this offering. Paul had told them about this, and we know that from looking down at verse 10. We didn't read this far uh, this morning, but look down in your Bibles, and it says, Herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before, in other words, you already started this ahead of time, not only to do, but also to be forward, how long? A year ago. And again, remember, Paul's doing everything. There's no 
there's no uh, Zoom meetings back then. There's no phone calls. There's no email. It's, he's showing up. He's, he's by ship. Uh, he's trekking across land, in some cases, by foot. And so uh, he's not able to get back to them too often, but he's now sending this letter by courier and say, hey, I already mentioned this. You already got this offering going on its feet in your own town, in your own church. But apparently what was happening is there was a little bit of neglect. Look back at verse 2. He says, How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, that's the Macedonians, and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. In other words, even though their bank accounts were kind of slim, they got very liberal in their giving. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. In other words, it wasn't just about what they had inside of themselves. Maybe there were current conditions that discouraged the Corinthians from giving at this time, and they needed a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a nudge. If anyone could have offered excuses for why they could not have given, it, you would really expect it from the Macedonians. Deep poverty, right? Paul's saying, you know, if I'm looking at their balance sheet as a church, you know, they really don't have it. And yet there's words like abounded and abundance that speak more of the viewpoint of the discerning believer. They're choosing to act out in this way. What they realized was a joy that only comes by living obediently to the Spirit of God in their life. And folks, that's still the way it works today. It's by us stopping and saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to write out all of my reasonings and rationale and excuses for why I shouldn't do something. I'm going to say, God, what would you have me to do? They say, well, that takes some faith to do that. Well, guess what? If we're going to please God, we must live by faith, right? Some of you are familiar with the man George Mueller. He had orphanages. And he was, he was not a well-endowed man. He was not a trust fund baby. He wasn't anything like that. He was a man of prayer is what he was. And you might have heard stories where, you know, the orphans don't have enough food for breakfast. Well, all right, let's pray. They pray. There's a knock at the door. And it's the milkman saying, my milk truck broke down and it's going to spoil. Can you use milk? Of course, right? It's a real story. But that's just one out of numerous, numerous stories. What a lot of people don't realize, George Mueller was a man that's like, you know what, I don't want to just be able to, to give to my orphans. In fact, his orphanages continued to grow, and he never solicited money directly himself. He didn't, like, go around. That's just how God impressed upon his heart. It's not wrong to go out and express that there's needs in the right way. But it was what God put on his heart. And what some people don't realize is there was a very famous missionary named Hudson Taylor. He went to China. George Mueller actually personally, financially supported Hudson Taylor to go to the mission field. Now, some people was like, George, aren't you doing enough just doing the, 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 uh, the orphanages? 
but he had a heart of liberality. He wanted to say, what, God, what would you have me to do? What are biblical principles that help us to maybe overlook some discouraging conditions? I'm going to list these off kind of rapidly, um, give you a chance to write them down if you choose. Probably also make these available in a printed form on our website as well if it's a help to people. But these are some things that I either uh, received from other people or came across in my own study that have helped me personally and Becky and I as a family to give in grace and to not be held to the circumstances. Because sometimes people will say, oh, I would love to give, but I'm waiting until I'm at this place financially so I can give. I'm like, well, if you wait for your circumstances to change, you probably never will give. Giving, giving by grace is not something to be controlled by our circumstances, folks. So principle number one is this. Grace giving is worship. Grace giving is worship. You say, isn't it to help keep the church going? Not first and foremost. We give to the Lord. Now, again, you know, you're talking to small children and you're telling them, trying to teach them growing up about giving. You give them an allowance or something like that. And it's like, okay, you know, think about, pray about what you'd give to the Lord or whatever. He's like, how do you give it to God? He's up there. You know, do you take your wallet? You know, he didn't take anything. I guess he doesn't want it, Daddy, you know. What did Jesus say? In the, you've done this unto the least of one of these, my disciples. You've done it even unto me. How, how do we do good to God? How do we give to God? By giving to that that he's interested in doing here. What does he love more than his church, right? Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance. The word honor in the Hebrew literally means to make heavy. We would say load it on. You know, think, think about, my wife and I like to go to a particular pizza establishment in town where you can tell them specifically what you want. And we always get these looks from them. We're like, you know, cheese, more cheese, more cheese, more pepperoni. They're trying to move down. No, go back, more pepperoni. Load it on, right? That's the picture here in the Hebrew. Honor the Lord. You're saying, I want the Lord to load on me. Well, the Lord does lay, daily load us with His benefits. We understand that. But the joy is that we get to honor or to load it on in our grace giving. He goes on to say, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits. Agricultural term as they did the harvest. This meant it was the, the first reapings. You didn't, in other words, they were always taught what you give to the Lord isn't, all right, well, we're going to take everything in. We know what we'll need to sell everything for so that we can pay our expenses, pay our wages to our workers, be able to make a decent profit. And then if there's something left over, we'll, we'll give that to the Lord. That was never the thinking of God's people. They say, you know what? We're going to decide up front what God gets. We give that to Him. And then we're going to trust God how to make do with the rest of it. By the way, that ought to be ahead of all other obligations. Taxes. Now, that doesn't mean that chronology, it might happen first, because we know 
you know, the taxes come out first, but in our minds and our hearts, it's like, you know, if, if anybody's going without, it's not going to be God. First fruits of all thine increase. And I remember thinking, of all thine increase? Sometimes people ask, do I, do I figure my giving to the Lord out of my net or out of my gross? Well, you, you do it out of your increase. Where's your increase? What does Uncle Sam consider your increase? He, he considers it your gross, right? So I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to do less for my God than I do for Uncle Sam. These are, again, these are some of my thoughts, okay, based on biblical principles. So grace giving, though, as you do it because it's in worship, it's like, Lord, I'm honoring you with this. This is a way I'm esteeming you in this. You know what? It isn't the dollar amount that God's honored with. It's that faith in our hearts that God is honored with. But sometimes that faith is inside of us. He puts us in places and situations where He tests us in that way, right? So grace giving is worship. Number two, grace giving is above tithing. You say, well, I thought tithing was something in the Old Testament. Actually, it says in Malachi 3.8, that if a man fails to tithe, he's literally robbing God. God says to the pe- his people, you've robbed me. And they said, wherein have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. They had been failing to give tithes and offerings to God. And God says, therefore, you've robbed me because you, you haven't understood stewardship. It's mine. And I've asked you to, by faith, give back to me a certain portion. You've held on to that. That's robbery, Right? If you held on to tax money that ought to go to the government, the IRS is going to call that robbery. You're going to face jail time for that. We'll say that's Malachi. That's a minor prophet. That's Old Testament. We're not under the law, right? Well, what about people that maybe lived before the law? Abraham, for instance, in Genesis 14, 20, he comes back from a battle, and there's this this booty that is received. He doesn't want any of it, but he's like, I don't want it personally, but let's, I would love to see it tithed on to the Lord. And so he paid tithes until Melchizedek, we understand, the high priest of God. Well, Abraham's before Moses. He's before the law. You say, what about the New Testament? Well, there's a place where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they're not treating their own family members right and taking care of them. He says, you know, it's like you're, you're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. And then he says to them, you know, you're very good at tithing. You know, if someone gives you some herbs, like a bunch of mint, you'll look at that bunch and you'll say, okay, 100% of the mint, this is a tenth of the mint, I'll give that back to God. They were meticulous tithers. So did Jesus say, you know what? You don't even need to be tithing. What he says to them in Matthew 23, 23 is, this ye ought to have done. In other words, it's right that you're tithing, but not to have left the other undone. In other words, it all needs to be done, right? So I do think that tithing is a good starting place for us to be thinking about in our lives when it comes to deciding what to give. And so I would challenge you, looking at your increase, the first fruits of your increase, what would that look like? You say, well, I'm retired. 
you still have money come in, right? You still have money coming in. And so what if I gave a tenth as a starting point to the Lord's work of all that He's done? Number three, grace giving is channeled through the local church. We see that right here. Now, Paul is going about, but it's going collected in a church, going back where? To a church, one in Corinth, one in Jerusalem. Now, there's lots of good opportunities to give out there. Even for my wife and I, there are some uh, wonderful humanitarian things that we might want to participate in to help out with. Uh, Sometimes there's you know, Second Amendment rights campaigns out there, and you're like, as an American, I'm concerned about that. You might like to give. I would not consider my money that I want to honor the Lord with as being given some of that there. That's not necessarily helping the gospel ministry. There are some what we call parachurch organizations, organizations outside of the church that do wonderful biblical Christian things, but they're not necessarily the church. An example we keep seeing over and over again is, you know, working through the body of Christ, the collections and the giving there. That's why we try to even, when we do offerings, we like to say we want to help our brothers in a catastrophe like in Syria and Turkey. You want to give to the church, and then the church will send an offering to help people that we know over there, like Operation Renewed Hope or others that we know that money's going to go to help in a way that we feel like it will be responsibly handled. And so that's a a good thing. Now, do you want to help some of those other organizations? Fine. But I would not personally want to pull away from my giving to God's ministry of the local church. Some people says, well, you know, doesn't the church have enough money? I'm like, well, if everybody gave in the church with the same mindset that you give, what condition would the church be in? Sometimes people say, you know, well, I'm giving here, I'm going there, you know. You don't know what the needs in the future might be for a ministry. Number four, grace giving should be prayerfully planned. Look over at chapter 9 and verse 7. He continues to talk about this concept of grace giving. And he says this, Every man according as he, what? Purposeth in his heart. In other words, you don't get to church. This is what I'm saying here. You don't get to church and it's like, oh, they're taking an offering. Now, we don't even pass the plate here anymore. Nothing wrong with doing that. We stopped doing that when COVID hit because we didn't want to transmit um, diseases and stuff like that. We put in offering boxes in the back. But we found that we really like the personal worship and you can just focus on getting your heart ready and you're not focused on, you know, doing whatever and having little conversations. You can just pray and get your heart ready and mind for the preaching of the Word of God. What's interesting is that giving not only held steady but went up because why? You as God's people have that stewardship in your mind. You don't necessarily have to have a plate thrust in front of you or as I've heard some preachers say, well, we didn't get enough, so we're going to pass the plates a second time. I would hate to think of something like that, right? Why? Because what we ought to be doing, every one of us, is we've prayed about it in our homes and in our hearts, and we've already decided, so we're not like, okay, what do I have in here? 
You know, Lord, whatever I find when I reach in, well, let me try it a second time. <laughs> I'm making a little bit of levity here, but, you know, sometimes that's the way people operate. But what does the Bible say? Every man according as he what? Purposes in his heart. That doesn't sound last minute to me, does it to you? So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. You should make it a priority in your budget. You say, what's a budget? (laughs) That's another discussion, right? But it's good to plan things out. Allow for contingencies in every area of our life. But it shouldn't be a stressful thing. It's like, I already know what I'm going to give. God's already laid it on my heart. There's no question about that. Principle number five, grace giving brings glory to God. Again, notice what verse seven says. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves. To say God doesn't, God love everybody. God takes great delight. There are certain things that we do that bring extra cheer to God, if you would. What is he like? What brings extra cheer? What causes him delight in our worship? It's when he sees us loving, excited about giving, not thinking, okay, Pastor Wood preached on stewardship. I guess I got this guilt trip on me now. I got to give. No, don't give. Don't give that way. You ought to give. But go home and get your heart right and realize man, it's, a, it's a joy. I get, I mean, God's given so much to me in my life. I mean, if He never did anything else but saved me even. But what do I have? Everything I have. So, I mean, even if I just start at 10%, that's nothing. Sixth principle, grace giving leads to abundant results. Look at back at verse 6. We call it the principle of sowing and reaping. He says, he which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. You go out and get one kernel of corn and you put it in a one acre of ground and bury it. Don't expect there to be crops with rows and rows of corn. In fact, you have to go out with bags and bags of corn, realizing not every kernel will necessarily sprout, right? So a farmer understood this concept. Don't be stingy about it. You need to sow abundantly. And as you sow bountifully, you will also reap bountifully. This, again, is more about a spirit of the heart, an attitude of the heart. And so I find myself saying, you know, if there's any debate in my mind, I'm going to round up for God's glory. This may be not just a personal return. This is not prosperity gospel. He's not saying here, if you... So, $100 in the offering that you'll get $500 back in the mail unexpectedly. You will not hear that from this pulpit because that is not a biblical principle. At least not a guaranteed happening. Now, has that happened? Absolutely, it happens. But the problem is there's some preaching out there that causes people to think, I'm giving so this will happen. But you know what? God has been bountiful to me in so many different ways outside of cash. In fact, I would have to say the cash is a minuscule part of it. 
Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. A proverb of Solomon there. In other words, you know, have this mindset of generosity. And he's not even just talking about towards God. But, you know, it's great to be able to be generous with people, too. And you don't do it, it's like, well, I'm going to do a favor for this person, so hopefully they'll, you know, do it for me someday. It, it will come back, you will be blessed, but you need to have that release spirit because you're doing it to honor who, first and foremost? God. And so we need to give as much as we can, not as little as we can, if you would. Say, but it's tough. Times are tough. I remember during the first year of COVID, the Anchorage camp, which I'm a board member of, Brother Mike Evans and I both serve on the board up there. And I remember thinking as a board member, I'm not sure how the camp is going to survive if they can't actually do camp. Now, part of what the camp gets up there is donations. But the bigger part of the revenue is camp fees, program fees, kids, adults, teens coming to camp. And that you know, costs money. And there are certain things that cost the camp, whether there's anybody there or not. No, you don't have to buy as much food. You still got to pay the electric bill. You still got to pay insurance on the buildings. You still got to pay the staff that's there, right? They still got to live. And I remember the board, we had a kind of like an emergency meeting and kind of came up with what were the fixed cost of the camp even when camp isn't happening, we came up with this amount of money. I'm thinking, wow, we're not going to get that probably in donations. But you know what? <laughs> we did. Abundantly above. And, and, and that year, 2020, financially was one of the most lucrative years of the camp. How? Jehovah Jireh, God provides. I will always treasure that. Not because I'm thankful that the camp stayed open, I am. I learned something wonderful about my God. I knew, but it was like driven deeper into my very soul. I'm thinking, God, why do I ever doubt? You got this. It's not my camp. It's not their camp. It's your camp. So even during discouraging conditions, we can still give by grace, can't we, folks? Secondly, grace giving includes determined compulsion. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Much entreaty, he is saying here. There is definitely an urgency in the tone of Paul here. But he wants that to be transferred to the hearts of the people. But this word praying literally has the idea of a beg behind it. But what about this word gift that we see here, that we would receive the gift? It's the same actual word as grace. It's not a separate word. It's that charis, grace. In other words, that we could receive this grace. They're giving financially, they're giving resources, but ultimately what they're 
transferring is, is grace by their activities. Receiving grace to give and demonstrating grace to others. Folks, we always have to look behind the mechanics of what we're doing in the real world and think about what's really happening spiritually going on. It's just like a battle. It's never just that confrontation between you and that person. It's a spiritual warfare. And we need to understand that. The Macedonians had given by the grace of God, not in their own strength. If Paul did not accept the contributions from them, he would have been opposing what God's grace was accomplishing. I mean, the Macedonians like, Paul, you've got to take this. I mean, maybe part of him was like, you know, I hate to take this from you. Folks are, you know, not so well off, and we hate to do that. A lot of missions programs in America are designed to flood money into countries to, to do certain projects. That's not always a bad thing. But one mission agency that I'm part of, that I, and one of the reasons why I love this mission agency, GFA, is because part of their philosophy of indigenous missions, in other words, helping works, churches sprout up in other foreign countries and cultures, is by teaching and training the people that live there, the nationals, that God can meet your needs. Now, if you have an American missionary, there's already this mindset of, well, don't you have some connections back there? We, we need a new roof for our church. And, and maybe it's $1,000. Well, $1,000 in that culture might be a significant hardship and might seem like an impossibility. It might, might be like $100,000 or a million dollars over here, probably more like it. And for that missionary to stand up and say, no, we're going to pray for God to work through us. And then I've heard accounts, the missionary saying how God would put in the hearts of those people, say, Lord, meet this need. Help me to be a conduit of meeting this need. And these people would have different stories. I was able to get some overtime I wasn't expecting had this gift. I was fishing and I got more fish than I was expecting or, you know, came across this and was able to sell whatever it was. And all of a sudden, you know, these people by grace and faith in God put the roof on their church. And you know what? These people had an entirely different mindset about their God. He says, I don't want them growing up and trusting the God of Americans. I want them, grow I want them growing and trusting their God. And so we need to realize that we have to have a determined compulsion. God, do this through me. Also in verse 5, grace-giving ignites divine consecration. Again, this is so much more about what God does in our lives individually. And I love this verse, so important. So this is all about financial giving, right? They're taking up offerings, the, the Macedonians are. But again, under the example, he says to the Corinthians, and this they did, they did take up an offering. There was a bag of money that went back to Jerusalem. This they did, 
not as we had hoped. In other words, not that they were disappointed. We had certain expectations. But first gave what, folks? Look at your Bibles. Their own selves. What does that mean? Consecration. They didn't start and say, all right, let's rummage around our house. They started with Romans 12, 1 and 2. They said, you know what? I am presenting myself as a living sacrifice unto God, which is absolutely just my reasonable service. And folks, aren't we gods? Doesn't our stewardship begin with us? I had one preacher say that, you know, if God has you, he has your wallet. And by the way, if he doesn't have your wallet, he doesn't really have you. Really kind of thought-provoking. Sometimes there's certain areas of our life where we're like, well, God, I'm trusting you and I'm living by grace with regard to my devotions. God, I, I'm, I'm looking to you for grace as I go out and I witness. God, I'm looking for you for grace as I do my parenting in the home and raising my children. But then we have these corners, these shadowy corners of our lives where we say, don't go there, please, God. But, you know, consecration is only one thing. It's 100%. If it's not 100%, it's not consecration. The point we need to realize is that God doesn't need our stuff. If you're not giving, if you're not rightly related to God in your stewardship, God's not up in heaven thinking, what are we going to do? This, I didn't see this one coming. I'm concerned about Anchor Baptist Church. I had plans, but I don't see how it's going to happen because this person, that person. That's not what God's doing. God is Jehovah Jireh. I love the words of Mordecai to Esther the Jewish people were about to be exterminated because of evil Mordecai or evil Haman. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you're the queen. You could ask for an audience of the king. Oh, I can't just walk in there, cut off my head if I'm not asked for. He says, well, you know what? Pray about it. And there was fasting and praying that went on for several days in this regard. And the end of the story is, of course, she does go in, Haman is hung, the people are, are saved, Feast of Purim is celebrated to this day. But I love what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, you know, you should do this. You should do this. But if thou altogether, Esther 4.14, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall... Uh, their enlargement, the Jewish people's enlargement and deliverance, arise to the Jews from another place. God, if you don't step up and take this opportunity, God's still going to save His people because God had made a covenant with Abraham. He's not going to allow him to be wiped out. God's Word is on the line here. You say, does God sometimes go with what seems to be plan B? Well, it's, it's in God's omniscience and sovereignty, it was always plan A, right? Seems like plan B. Judges, Deborah and Barak. God says, Deborah, go to Barak say you're going to be a deliverer. Well, I'll only go if you go with me. 
You know, well, he should have just trusted God, right? Plan A. Deborah says, well, okay, but I guess what? You know, there is going to be victory, but you're not going to get the glory for it. A woman is. And of course, Sisera the king. It's here for the ladies, right? Hey, you know, that is a good principle. Guys, if we don't take the leadership we're supposed to do it, someone will. And so old Sisera had his, his temple pegged to the ground, literally, right, by a woman. And she received the glory. Now, the point is, we're not doing this to receive glory. We're not looking at this for accolades and pats on the back. We shouldn't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Do it for God, right? Jesus, or Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, that Jesus died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Jesus on the cross demonstrated the most supreme act of giving. He gave it all. It was supreme love. It was all outward. It was not expecting anything back. And knowing that, thinking about the gospel message, thinking about your salvation, you didn't get saved and added to the kingdom of Christ and become part of a church so that you could live like you're on a cruise ship spiritually. We're not here to live for ourselves. point is, okay, God, you've blessed me. You've released me from spiritual bondage. So how can I best serve? Not living henceforth to myself. God has your heart. Then he has everything. Remember the young man who went away sorrowful in Matthew 19, 22 because he had great possessions? Jesus knew it was a heart issue. It wasn't about his bulging wallet. It was about his spirit of surrender and consecration. Fourthly, and lastly, grace giving is intends a delightful completion. Notice verse 6. Insomuch that we desired Titus that he as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. The goal to finish in verse 6, that word finish, is not reaching a financial target. Again, this is not about, I'm going to give so that it'll come back upon me. I, I grew up just miles from the, the old Jim and Tammy Baker stronghold of Heritage USA and, and knew many people who, who suffered under that heretical teaching. So finishing isn't a financial target. Notice the phrase, in you. That's what God's interested in. That's what the finish line is. I have something I'm trying to do in you. And so if you go home and pray and say, God, what would you have me to give towards your ministry, towards your work in 2023? And what He impresses upon your heart what you sit down and you you come up with, you're struggling with. Realize that that struggle is part of what God's trying to build in you. 
And by faith, it's like, will you trust me? Now, God's not asking you to mortgage lands. He's not asking you to, you know, go in debt or to run down your bank accounts, right? Go back to the, the principles of the first fruits, right? The first fruits. Start there. I was having a conversation with Pastor Brian not too long ago, and I appreciate he pointed out that story about the widow's might, you know. And I had never quite seen it this way before, but it's talking about how they observe and she's throwing in all that she has. We kind of pat her on the back like Jesus is giving her as the example. But most likely what's actually happening there is Jesus is pointing out she's been pressured by the Pharisees to do what she has done there. And that's not, you know, giving like 100% what necessarily brings glory to God in your life in that way. But we don't usually even struggle at that point, right? We're never at that widow's two mites. I had one person say to me a long time ago when they were reading that passage, it's like, you know, God has blessed me with a lot of resources and properties and finances, and that's something I struggle with. He says, and I was reading that story, and I thought, if I only had two mites, it wouldn't be too difficult to throw it in, because I'm like, it's just two mites, right? So we need to have a biblical understanding. The fact that it isn't about the dollar sign, it's about what God is spiritually doing inside of our souls. I love it, Colossians 4.12, Epaphras prayed for the believers of that church there in Colossae, that they might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You know what? That is my heart. It's my heart for me, for my family, for my flock. Some pastors would shy away from teaching on a topic like this. Well, I don't want people to think that I'm a money grubber, I'm preaching for money. You know what? It's a blessing to stand up here just a few weeks after we just had our state of the ministry, Brother Mike was talking about our giving per capita. This is a giving church. I'm not standing here because I'm saying that, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay Pastor Dale next week if you guys don't give. It's not that way. You know, it's not that way at all. This is a giving church. But, but just because money's coming in and because we're doing, we have nice buildings and we're trying to build a new building doesn't mean we're all giving as we should. So I would challenge you to go back through these, some of these principles and say, is my heart cheerful? Am I purposing? Am I doing this by grace? Is it worship to God? Am I giving as the ministry of God? Do I see myself as a steward? And folks, it's so liberating and so joyful and so fulfilling to come to the place in your life where that is not a struggle but a joy for you in your life. You could probably all think of people that exemplify giving. Sometimes it's a private matter. Typically is, so we don't always know. But you want, you want to see what a good giving church is. Look around you. This is a good church giving church. So if you're already following these biblical principles, just keep it up. And maybe you'd say, well, you know, maybe the Lord had me do more. Well, pray. 
Ask God to give guidance. And if God chooses to do that, praise the Lord. Over the years, I've had people come to me in private and say, Pastor, I I don't feel comfortable saying this in public, but I I just got to tell someone. And they would share how the Lord had answered a prayer that they wanted to give to a specific need that was in the church. This specifically one was when we were building this building. And God allowed something to happen in their lives that far exceeded what they had anticipated. But they said, it it happened in juxtaposition to my prayer. And I, I was of little faith. I really didn't even think while I was praying it that God was going to answer it, but He did. And He taught me so much as His child and about Him being my Heavenly Father. And I'm like, praise God. That's more important than any amount of zeros that might come in on an offering check. And that really is the truth, folks. And so I hope that you'll consider the example of giving by grace that we've seen today. And may the Spirit of God use it in your lives. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you would use this in our lives to truly walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we know that as we live by faith, it's, a, it's impossible for a man to please you except that we live by faith. And so, Father, I pray that we would, even in this specific area of our life, look at our resources as that which is not ours, but is yours. And we have the delight of giving back for the service and ministry of the gospel, that which you'd have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as we consider this idea of stewardship and what is God's, there's a wonderful hymn, All for Jesus, All for Jesus. Before we sing it, though, I just want to give an opportunity for us to reflect and respond on what we've heard from the Word of God today. I don't want you to respond because Pastor Wood said something or I gave a compelling illustration, but you saw in the Word of God a principle, precept, and say, I see, I know what God's Word says. Maybe there's a way that God's going to expand your walk with Him because of this. might be a struggle, but if you surrender... I can assure you this, there will be a joy and a liberating of your soul like you've not known yet. You are the benefactor of that, but you have to trust God. And so as we have this time of invitation, maybe say, I don't get this because I don't understand this idea of being a child of God and Him my Heavenly Father because I need to be saved. I need to trust Christ as my Savior. We can help you with that too.